0: The National Archives podcast series, The Gunpowder Plot, Key Documents and Hidden Voices, presented by James Travers. Uh, When I was asked to write a book on the uh, 400th anniversary in 2005, I decided to combine my interests in history and literature in, in a new approach, not the old ideological arguments constructed with hindsight, but characters' decisions and reactions to events unfolding like a novel. I wanted to bring the documents out of the footnotes to show a more immediate and more involving story. The language of the documents is often beautiful, and they are also varied and physically interesting. Charred from a gunpowder explosion, there was one, though one, not the one they wanted. Written in deciphered invisible ink, confessions, conspiratorial notes, desperate pleas for help, disguised anonymous warning letters, and coded expressions of love. Today, I want to look at some of these key documents and tease out some of the human story of the gunpowder plot. The scenes of the plot divide naturally into three acts. First, the plotter's final preparations and the discovery of forks with the gunpowder in London. Secondly, the plotter's failed attempt to foment rebellion in the Midlands, with initial investigation ending in the execution of the core plotters in January. And thirdly, the more composed government investigation into the mastermind and motivations behind the plot which flushed and lured elements from those in the wings and in hiding, much of it embarrassing to the government. This engraving shows the core plotters, those who dominated and drove the scheme forwards. Robert Catesby, gentleman of Ashby St. Ledgers, Northamptonshire, who was its prime mover. Thomas Percy, constable of Annick Castle, member of the King's bodyguard and the group's means of access to Parliament and the royal family. And Thomas Winter, gentleman, soldier and scholar, its diplomatic arm, who in Flanders had recruited Guy Fawkes, a man skilled in arms who had served the Spanish forces abroad for so long that his face was inconveniently unknown in England. John Wright, another core conspirator and a schoolfellow school of Fawkes in York, is shown listening while Catesby and Percy talk simultaneously. He seems to have been the strong, silent type. Both Wright and Thomas Winter recruited their brothers as extra manpower, and both had depicted on the edge of the group. Robert Winter, the elder brother who had inherited the family estate in Worcestershire, is shown in a worldly way passing a note to Catesby's servant, Thomas Bate. Characteristically, he is looking outside the group to his responsibilities beyond. Others lurk in the shadows round this social circle. The late rich recruits, Sir Everard Digby, Ambrose Rookwood and Francis Tresham are still to arrive at the party. Indeed, Caseby seems barely to have introduced them to others before the plot was discovered. Lord Monteagle, Tresham's brother-in-law, hailed as the saviour of his nation for disclosing an anonymous letter warning of the plot, had employed Thomas Winter as his secretary, and had been in the plotter's circle for years. Henry Percy, Earl of Northumberland, Thomas Percy's cousin, who had appointed the plotters of the king's bodyguard, was reportedly already dissatisfied with the Scottish king he had done so much to bring to the English throne. Henry 9th Earl of Northumberland, was the head of one of England's great Catholic families, though he professed not to be a Catholic himself. Controversies raged about the real extent of Northumberland's loyalty to King James and his complicity in the gunpowder plot through his cousin Thomas Percy. Northumberland's pleas of innocence were not helped by the ambiguity of his language. His letters betray an astute nobleman biding his time, waiting to see what came of things. Was he the real power behind the plot or one of its intended victims? or as he insisted himself, a man of private life who liked gardening, arcane scientific experiments, and who had no interest in power. Sometimes it seemed he did not have sufficient power to control his own poor relation, Thomas Percy. In November 1603, Northumberland chose to recommend Percy to his king in a letter about plots. The Earl congratulated his king on his escape from the plots which had surrounded his accession for earlier in the year. Themselves an indication that though James is rightly said to have come the th- to the throne almost unopposed, there are a great number of well-connected individuals who were malcontents or potential malcontents. Even those who worked most conscientiously to bring James to the throne could be opportunists as much as they were loyalists. There was much in the letter, as always with Northumberland, that could be read two ways. Recommending mercy as well as justice to the plotters of 1603, Northumberland reminded the king of the plot they were both involved in to ensure James's succession to the throne and Thomas Percy's important role as a messenger. No wonder suspicion hung over Northumberland afterwards. The letter is heavily crossed out, as though Northumberland had struggled to find the right phrases. They are the careful words of a great man treading a fine line, rather than the joyous outpourings of a law subject. By the time he got to the bit about Thomas Percy, the crossings out finish, and he moves more freely and more confidently in their old conspiratorial manner from the time before James came to the throne. This ancient mercury of mine, my cousin Percy, who could not before time look you in the face but by owl alight, would be glad to see your majesty by daylight. Poor men have as great devotions as great estates. Therefore to satisfy his desire and to excuse my absence, if your majesty have not other service to command me, he most humbly kisseth your hands that will ever be found your majesty's most loyal and devoted servant, N. There is some ambiguity about the who the he referred to here is. Is Northumberland talking about himself in the third person, or Percy acting for him in his absence? Either way, Northumberland seems to equate his loyalty with Percy's, five months before the latter took a vow to blow the king up. In retrospect, the king might well question how great that loyalty was. The letter was certainly an unfortunate attempt at an introduction in the light of subsequent events. Percy's death before the authorities had a chance to cross-examine him has robbed us of valuable evidence of the speed and depth of his disillusionment. Though according to the evidence of Henry Garnet, father superior of the English Jesuit province, suppressed by the king himself, many prominent figures found the king odious, of all the plotters, Percy seemed most motivated by a personal dislike of James, perhaps because he knew him best. Percy's over-sanguine reporting of James's relentlessly ambiguous diplomatic language bore some responsibility for the disappointment of Catholics in James's supposed broken promises of toleration. And Percy felt the king had deceived him. How much did Northumberland know of what was going on in the mind of his dangerous but indispensable cousin? And how much of what he knew would he tell the king? What were the feelings of Thomas Percy in 1603 when Northumberland suggested to James that Percy would like to meet him openly after years as a secret go-between? Was he a man eager to accept his due reward now James was established on the throne like so many others who emerged from the shadows on James's accession in the expectation of better times ahead? Or was he the same Thomas Percy, who only five months later was sitting in the Strand in London with Catesby and Thomas Winter and Fawkes and John Wright, devising the gunpowder plot? Perhaps these, the difference between these two versions of Percy is not, after all, that great, and Northumberland's misjudgment of his loyalty is more understandable than it appeared to the authorities. The difference between the loyal Percy of the Owl light and the dangerous one of the Daylight was not necessarily the result of a great shift in ideology, but a scale tipped by vanity and personal pique. He had helped put James in power and boasted of his influence, but he had not got what he wanted. Perhaps Percy's position was a reality not so far removed from Northumberland's own. Shadowy letters of all kinds passed from informers and plotters in the next two years before the arrival of the most mysterious and famous of them all. On the 26th of October 1605, Lord Monteagle made the sudden decision to visit his house at Hoxton for the first time in several weeks, and ordered supper to be prepared. A reasonable tall stranger, his features fortuitously concealed by the twilight, left a letter with a servant of the house who happened to be outside. This was when passed to another servant, whom Monteagle asked to read it aloud while he ate. This has been taken as evidence both of Monteagle's innocence and his complicity. The letter contained a thinly disguised warning of some explosive enterprise against the opening of Parliament and its substance was quickly passed on to the plotters. One of them, Thomas Winter, was after all well known in the Monteagle household. He had served Monteagle as secretary of some sort for several years and had attended the prorogation of Parliament on the 3rd of October 1605 in Monteagle's entourage. The letter was oddly worded and disguised by an artful illiteracy, but the meaning was clear enough. My lord, out of the love I bear to some of your friends, I have a care of your preservation. Therefore, I would advise you, as you tender your life, to devise some excuse to shift of your attendance at this Parliament. For God and man hath concurred to punish the wickedness of this time. And think not slightly of this advertisement, but retire yourself into your country, where you may expect the event in safety. For though there be no appearance of any stir, yet I say they shall receive a terrible blow this parliament, and yet they shall not see who hurts them. This council is not to be condemned because it may do you good, and can do you no harm, for the danger is past as soon as you have burnt the letter. And I hope God will give you the grace to make good use of it, to whose holy protection I commend you." Luckily for us, uh, Monteagle did not follow his instructions and burn the letter its authorship has provoked great debate. The plotters themselves identified the author of the warning letter as Francis Tresham, a lukewarm plotter who had offered Catesby money to forget the whole thing. Among those ingeniously supposed to have written it was the Earl of Salisbury, keen to show off the efficiency of his intelligence network by inventing a plot for it to uncover. The heavily disguised and archly illiterate letter certainly suggests a writer known to Monteagle who wished to conceal his identity though it has been suggested that Thomas Phillips, Francis Walsingham's chief decipherer and the annotator of the gallows letter which helped send James's mother Mary Queen of Scots to her death, might have been the man to concoct it. Perhaps only Francis Tresham knew his man well enough to know precisely what Monteagle would do with the information it contained, and knew too that the warning would need to be disguised because Monteagle was too careful of his own newfound credit with the government not to tell them who had told him. Tresham's moral and practical position in relation to the plot was rather like that of his brother-in-law, Monteagle. He was of the plotter's circle and associated with previous plots, but he had dissociated himself from the gunpowder plot as soon as he had heard of it and had done all he could to prevent it, aside from direct betrayal, which would have put him at the mercy of the plotters and the authorities. The letter was a lame compromise, but it worked, and it was a brave thing to do as for Monteagle to risk revealing it. Tresham never got the recognition and protection of the authorities, who did not show any great curiosity about the author of the letter. Perhaps since it must have come from one close to the plot, it would have risked giving the conspiracy a human face. Tresham never seems to have claimed authorship of the letter to try and gain favour with the authorities, but since Salisbury's object was to preserve Monteagle as the sole loyal figure, the lack of surviving evidence about the author of the letter is hardly surprising. Monteagle took his letter to Whitehall, where he found some of the most prominent members of the Privy Council at supper. The Earl of Salisbury's initial reaction to the letter seems to have been sceptical. In the official account of events, King James himself, in his Old Testament wisdom as a Joseph or a Daniel, returned from his hunting at Royston and was shown the letter and immediately grasped its significance, to the admiration of his hitherto mystified councillors. This is not quite as incredible as it sounds, James's father had been killed in a gunpowder explosion and James was always sensitive to the possibilities of assassination. Knowing of the letter, the principal plotters, Thomas Winter, Robert Catesby and Thomas Percy, met on the evening of the 3rd of November. Percy stiffened their resolve and resolved to go to Sion House to dine with his kinsman, the Earl of Northumberland, to try and gauge the level of official knowledge of the plot. After the dinner, he was able to reassure them there was no sign of the plot having been discovered. So Fawkes took up his station in the vault, with a slow match, under watch, sent to him by Percy via Robert Keyes, because he should know how the time went away. Meanwhile, the Privy Council was treading carefully. To allow the plot to ripen. Nothing nothing further was done until the 4th of November. James hoped that as the plan progressed, not merely those who were involved in the mechanics, but also those in power who were supporting them would be revealed. An initial tour by the Earl of Suffolk As Lord Chamberlain, he was responsible for preparations for the new Parliament, accompanied by Monteagle, provided the authorities with all the evidence they could have hoped for. They found Fawkes overseeing a large quantity of firewood in a vault rented by his master Thomas Percy. Monteagle made a few pointed remarks to Suffolk as they returned about being previously unaware that Percy, a Catholic, rented a cellar in Westminster. Fawkes was arrested and the gunpowder discovered. As John Chamberlain reported to his friend, the diplomat Dudley Carlton, a man who had helped Thomas Percy rent his vault beneath the Parliament House, the first bonfire night celebration happened on the evening of the discovery itself. On Tuesday at night, we had great ringing and as great store of bonfires as I think was ever seen. As other news, Chamberlain reported the somewhat overshadowed publication of the second volume of Francis Bacon's groundbreaking scientific work, The Advancement of Learning, both Bacon and his fellow writer Ben Jonson were perhaps too busy to notice. Both, on the day following Chamberlain's letter, were supplying information to the Earl of Salisbury on the activities of London's Catholics, part of a flood of evidence which the authorities found difficult to interpret. Thomas Percy was reported leaving London in four different directions. This is the next bit. The Midlands Rebellion is the thing that convinces me that it's not all about Cecil's intelligence network, because from the 5th to the 12th, he didn't have the faintest idea what was going on. Then there came the first confused reports of a rising in the Midlands, and the focus of the investigation suddenly widened. The court intrigue of a disillusioned gentleman pensioner Thomas Percy, abetted by a well-travelled gentleman Guy Fawkes, alias John Johnson, posing as his servant, suddenly threatened to become a full-scale Catholic rebellion. Percy was not just a bodyguard turned assassin; he had, it seemed, plotted to kidnap and proclaim a puppet Catholic monarch among King James's younger children. After the explosion. Might part of this plan go ahead now that the explosion had been foiled? The authorities were able to build up an accurate and lengthy list of Catholics suddenly absent from London, all related and all based in the Midlands. The Earl of Salisbury had to rely on reports two or three days old, some accurate, some wild of what was going on in the Midlands, while the investigations in London brought copious evidence of the plot already foiled, but little more on a planned rebellion. The authorities only got fuller information when the surviving plotters arrived in London on the 12th of November. In the week from the discovery of the plot until this date, all was uncertainty. Luckily, we can share, through the surviving documents, not only the atmosphere in London following the discovery, but also the rebellion itself. One of the most memorable scenes in the drama of the gunpowder plot must have been the rendezvous at Dunchurch, where a party of Catholic gentlemen led by Sir Everard Digby ready to kidnap James's daughter Elizabeth from Croom Court, was interrupted by the fleeing conspirators from London, exhausted and beaten, but with Catesby proclaiming the king and Salisbury dead and a Catholic rising well underway. Fantasy figures were banded about of a force of a thousand men expected to converge on Holbeach House in Staffordshire. Catesby, Percy and their associates in reality numbered some eighty in all. At 11 on the night of 5th of November, the rebels raided Warwick Castle, seizing fresh horses from the stables, a move opposed by Thomas Winter's brother, Robert. With an estate and a wife and children, he had more than his brother to lose from the Midlands rebellion. Robert Winter's letters give us a clear view of a human face among the plotters. He did not share Catesby's dream of support from Robert's father-in-law, Sir John Talbot, but after the discovery of the gunpowder end of the operation, Catesby arrived in the Midlands with all his faith pinned on such dreams. Robert Winter stayed in the Midlands and was not among the initial suspects sought by the authorities, but as they trailed from house to house looking in vain for support, he felt the noose tighten around his neck. By the time the conspirators arrived at Robert Winter's house, he was its master only in name. Catesby assumed command again, and with John Wright, pressured him to write for support to his father-in-law. As Winter later protested, Mr. Catesby and my cousin John Wright took me aside and told me there was no remedy, but I must write to my father Talbot to see if I could therewith draw him to us. I flatly refused it, saying, My masters, you know not my father Talbot as well as I. If I should send him such a letter, he would surely stay my man, for I protest I verily think all the world cannot draw him from his allegiance. Besides, what friends have my poor wife and children but him, and therefore satisfy yourselves, I will not. Well, quoth Catesby, you must write to one Mr. Smallpiece that serveth your father-in-law. So to satisfy their importunity, I took paper and writ as he willed me, word after word. Which done? Well, sirs, quoth I, this letter only were enough to hang me, and any he that should conceal it. The fatal letter Robert Winter was forced to write is perhaps a unique survival, being neither a planning letter from before the plot, or evidence generated by the official investigation but a hurried note written in desperation and under duress during the rising itself. The possibility that they would all be hanged, preyed on Robert's mind as he wrote, with Catesby dictating and looking critically over his shoulder. Though only part of each line survives, the nature and desperation of the plea is very clear. This isn't going to quite make sense, but uh, I hope you get something of the flavour. Good cousin, I hope it will not seem strange to you that a good number of resolved Catholics now perform matters of such, Will set the most straight, or hang those that ever. Use your best endeavor to stir up my father Talbot, which I should much more honorable than be hanged after. Cousin, pray for me, I pray you, and send me all such friends as thou hast. I leave you from Huddington this 6th of November." After a dispiriting trudge and cold drizzle, which failed to raise a single supporter but allowed many who had rallied at Dunchurch to make their escape, the 14 remaining rebels arrived at Holbeach House in Staffordshire, on the evening of the 7th of November. They decided to dry their damp, currently useless gunpowder before an open fire, only for the large stocks designed to equip the army, which never materialized, to explode. Catesby and Rookwood emerged badly burned and John Grant was almost blinded. The others were badly shaken and any remaining confidence was swiftly eroded. The horrific and deeply ironic explosion roused fear in the minds of the conspirators that God Did not after all support their actions. John Wright suggested to Catesby they might blow themselves up with the remaining gunpowder. The suggestion was not followed, but unsurprisingly there were further desertions. On the morning of 8th November, carrying his brother Robert's unwilling plea for support, Thomas Winter had ridden to Pepper Hill and called on Sir John Talbot in vain to recruit assistance. Returning from the fruitless mission, Winter was advised by Stephen Littleton, friends of the plotters and owner of Holbeach House. While still some distance from Holbeach, to make good his escape. Winter later recorded his soldierly response. I told him I would first see the body of my friend and bury him whatsoever befell me. In his own account, Winter asked Catesby, Percy, the Wrights, and Rookwood and Grant what they meant to do. They answered, We mean here to die. I said again I would take such part as they did. When the house was besieged by the local militia on the Friday morning, Thomas Winter, Robert Catesby and Thomas Percy fought back to back in the last desperate struggle. Only Winter survived long enough to report their last stand. Then said Mr Catesby to me, standing before the door they were to enter, Stand by me Tom and we will die together. Sir, quoth I, I have lost the youth of my right arm and I fear it will cause me to be taken. So as we stood close together Mr Catesby, Mr Percy and myself, they too were shot as far as I could guess with one bullet and then the company entered upon me, hurt me in the belly with a pick and gave me other wounds until one came behind and caught hold of both my arms. While the rebellion was coming to its bloody climax a hundred miles away, Guy Fawkes in the tower was coming under increasing pressure from the authorities to tell all he knew. The severity of his treatment reflected this. His torture came at the height of the government's anxiety when wild rumours about the extent of the Midlands Rebellion were still being received. Then it seemed that Fawkes's evidence might be the only way to understand not only the catastrophic destruction of Parliament so narrowly averted, but also a growing popular rebellion which might threaten the government afresh. When Fawkes did set his hand to the declaration which followed, he could barely write. The infamous confession with its failing signature in fact gave the authorities very little additional information, much less than Thomas Winter in government hands at Worcester would already have been able to tell them. He says um, several things, straightforward things, like the plot was to blow up the king with all the nobility with him in Parliament. He confesses that there was also speech among them to draw Sir Walter Raleigh to take part with them, being one that might stand them in good stead, as others in like sort were named. This is not only a declaration made to Salisbury, but to some extent made by him and Sir Cook to reflect their preoccupations. Perhaps a sign that evidence under torture was more likely to affirm whatever suggestions were put, rather than supply anything substantially new. Uncomfortably for the authorities, Francis Tresham emerged as a human face in the plot, an unwilling figure exceeding earnest to warn Lord Lord Monteagle not to attend Parliament. With Catesby and Percy dead, search for the great man behind the plot shifted from the relatively peripheral taciturn forks to the central and eloquent figure of Thomas Winter now safely in custody. Fawkes found himself thrust from the limelight and moved from his cell to accommodate many more and important prisoners. This is uh, the National Archives' copy of Winter's Confession. This is Sareb Cook's corrected version, which omits some of the human element from his account, distances Monteagle and makes Jesuit involvement explicit, but agrees substantially with the original Hatfield House unnecessary weight and argument has been attached to the fact that the date of the National Archives' version has been altered from the date the copy was made to the date of the original confession, and that the handwriting and signature are quite obviously not Winters' own. The use of fair copies of important evidence in legal cases was perfectly standard in the period. It had been established as admissible in court following a precedent set by William Mill, clerk of the Court of Star Chamber, who had copied depositions taken in the High Court of Delegates for the use in his own court in uh, 1603. What is nearly unforgeable about both the original confession and the copy is some Winters' literary style, the humorous rhythms and cadences of his prose, and the naturalness of his dialogue, which historians have found so irresistible ever since. Even after the attempts in official circles to make the plotters seem less human, something of the wit of his notes during the planning of the plot remains in the style of the confession. This from Thomas Percy. The first word he spake after he came into our company was, Shall we always, gentlemen, talk and never do anything? And Robert Catesby, how necessary it was not to forsake our country, but to deliver her out of the servitude where she remained, to blow up the Parliament House with gunpowder. For, said he, in that place have they done us all the mischief, and perchance God hath designed that place for their punishment. Thomas Winter himself wondered at the strangeness of the conceit but if it should not take effect, as most of this nature miscarried, the scandal will be so great that the Catholic religion might hereby sustain as not only our enemies, but our friends would with good cause condemn us." To which Catesby replied, the nature of the disease required so sharp a remedy. While Percy and Catesby had alternatively boasted of their aristocratic connections and belittled their patrons for the ease with which they duped them, Thomas Winter had a less extravagant, more pragmatic approach. He followed Lord Monteagle out of financial necessity, but spent little energy in protecting or implicating him. Though devout and committed to the plot, he did not react to the explosion of the plaza's gunpowder before their final stand at Holbeach, so much as a sign of divine displeasure, rather as an accident of war. His reaction was practical – fight to the last with the weapons available. Winter, having furnished the authorities with much of what they needed to know of the plotters and their motivations, successfully established his own credibility. He went on to tell them rather more than they wanted to hear, referring to communication with the plotters from Lord Monteagle in relation to their intrigues with Spain before 1603. Eight plotters, Guy Fawkes, Thomas and Robert Winter, Robert Keyes, John Grant, Thomas Bate, Ambrose Rookwood, and Sir Everard Digby, were finally tried in Westminster Hall on 27th January 1606, Digby, whose treason was first committed in a different county to the others, was tried on a separate indictment at the end of the day. Alone among the eight accused, he pleaded guilty. This gave him the opportunity to make a speech with the stage to himself. Digby repeated the assertion made in a letter to Salisbury that the King had reneged upon promises of toleration for Catholics, and claimed that his affection for Catesby and the desire to ease the lot of Catholics had prompted his actions. He knew, he said, that he could not hope to alter the resolved course for him but his manner and bearing impressed many in the packed hall. After the verdict of the eight accused, only Digby spoke. He addressed the assembled lords. If I may but hear any of your lordships say you forgive me, I shall go more cheerfully to the gallows. Again, he believed his personality might move the intended victims of the explosion to treat him differently. To some extent he was right, for he received the gentle, ambiguous reply, God forgive you and we do. After being found guilty, Robert Winter confined himself to a simple plea for mercy, while Thomas only desired that he might be hanged both for his brother and himself. Fawkes justified his plea of not guilty on the grounds that the indictment was inaccurate, exaggerating the role of the Jesuits. On 30th January, Digby and his co-conspirators Robert Winter, John Grant and Thomas Bate were drawn on traitor's hurdles through the streets to St. Paul's churchyard, where a gallows had been erected. All four were drawn and quartered after only a brief hanging to ensure they were still alive as they were dissected. The first to suffer, Digby, met his death bravely. His biographer, John Albury, with his usual ear for a good story, claimed that Digby's character and sense of the dramatic survived his execution. When his heart was plucked out by the executioner who cried, here is the heart of a traitor, it is credibly reported, he replied, thou liest. Robert Winter also had an eye for posterity according to other remarks reported from his conversation with Guy Fawkes in the Tower. Defiantly, he suggested that their deaths will be followed by others in an unending struggle. God will raise up seed to Abraham out of the very stones. Our deaths shall be sufficient justification of it, and it is for God's cause. The Attorney General, Sir Edmund Cook, spent much of Plotter's trial hinting that the ape being tried were simply the actors in the plot. The director, the criminal mastermind he implied, had yet to be found. Despite all the evidence that Catesby had been the prime mover, experience of previous plots made the government very reluctant to believe that there was no such hidden figure. Each had their own preferences for the role. Sir Ebel Cook picked up on passing references in Fawkes' Confessions and identified Sir Walter Raleigh as plotting while imprisoned in the tower. The Earl of Salisbury favoured troublesome Englishmen abroad, such as Hugh Owen, the English Intelligencer at the um, Imperial Court in Brussels, or the Jesuits and there is some evidence that part of his motivation was to absolve English Catholics of any native treason and blame foreign influence. Henry Garnet, father superior of the English Jesuit province, was close to the core plotters, but was he a a restraining influence or the arch plotter himself. He was perhaps the most influential individual interrogated by the commissioners investigating the plot, and the one who caused them the most difficulty. He advanced two contradictory defences of his conduct in relation to the plot, One, that he was ignorant of it, and two, that he had done all he could to prevent it. His evidence was difficult to evaluate, and he infuriated his examiners, not least because they suspected, probably correctly, that he was cleverer than they were. His social ease with his questioners annoyed them, and popular rumour flourished about the priest who drank wine liberally, sang to the lute, and inspired love in the women who protected him. The authorities alternated from the threat of torture with theological debate, of which Garnet triumphed monotonously. Worse still, he interpreted the the seal of the confessional so broadly that he felt able to conceal almost anything told to him in confidence from the authorities. Thanks to the doctrine of equivocation which Garnet himself wrote about at length, he felt able to lie with calm conviction in a good cause. Though it cannot have been the first time that the authorities were aware that a suspect was telling them less than the whole truth, Garnet's equivocation seemed to have enraged them. Threatening to undermine the whole basis of gathering and crediting evidence on which the investigation was based, while he replied casually to his interrogators, Garnet found ingenious ways to communicate with his friends. He began to produce suspiciously small and inconsequential messages on suspiciously large sheets of paper. The legible part of an early letter from the Tower included a request for a pair of spectacles, with a fold in the leather for your nose. Presumably designed to alert the recipient to the fact that there was another way of looking at the letter. The real message was written on the back of the sheet in orange juice, which acted as an invisible ink, becoming visible when warmed. Garnet's letters were intercepted and deciphered, however, by one John Lockerson, a government agent who befriended Garnet. Instead of smuggling the letters out, he passed them to the Lieutenant of the Tower, Sir William Wade. Once they had been deciphered by warming at the fire, they could not be passed on, so the originals survive at the National Archives and among Salisbury's papers at Hatfield House. Instead, copies were made and sent on in the hope of soliciting incriminating secret replies from the recipients, which would also be intercepted. This first letter about spectacles contained Garnet's account of receiving Sir Everard Digby's letter at Count Court on the 6th of November, and described Mary Digby's tearful reaction to her husband's desperate plight. In a later Orange Juice letter, Garnet commented on the concealments and equivocations of his replies under interrogation and the weakness of the case against him, They have nothing against me but presumptions." As time passed, his comments became less sanguine with the realisation that in trials for treason, presumptions were all the evidence required. In a long letter dated Shrove Tuesday, 4th of March 1606, Henry Garnett gave Anvo a full and witty account of his arrest and interrogation. Annotated, keep all discreetly secret, it gave details of life in a priest's hole, immobile for seven days and nights. Garnett implied that he and his fellow priest, Edward Alcorn, had been forced to give themselves up only by the conditions of their hiding place. They could have held out much longer if they had had a toilet. Having a closed stall, we could have hidden a quarter of a year. The searchers, when they discovered them, were more frightened than the priests, thinking the deadly Jesuits would have been armed with pistols. The result, an ironic reflection on local law enforcement, was a vast crowd of gawping men assembled to secure two middle-aged clergymen who could barely walk. The fellow that found us ran away for fear, thinking we would have shot a pistol at him. But there came needless company to assist him, and we bade them, Be quiet, and we would come forth. So they helped us out very charitably. Despite the seriousness of the situation, Garnet writes of the comedy of his own position and the nature of the pursuing forces, which, as at the siege of Holbeach House, did not sound much like the inexorable arm of a police state. Garnet and Oldcorn were carried to Worcester as prisoners, just as the survivors of the plotter's last stand at Holbeach had been. Sir Henry Bromley, who had led the search for Garnet as an enemy of the state at Hindlip, immediately took him to dinner. Later popular calumny harped on Garnet's love of wine as if he were a drunkard, which he was not, but he does devote almost an entire page of a four-page letter to describing the wines on offer at Sir Henry's table. Ben Johnson's Four Pony, written in the wake of the discovery of the plot, retold the gossip about Garnet with a characteristically ambiguous twist. "'I have heard the rack hath cured the gout,' observes the advocate Voltori in the course of suggesting how to treat the captured miscreant Volponi, implying that Garnet had indeed been tortured, but that it had done him good by curing the symptoms of his drunkenness. Neither Garnet's apologists nor his enemies would admit both parts of this rumour. Perhaps Johnson wished to present them both as equally untrustworthy. The government set about confronting Garnet and his fellow Jesuit Edward Olcorn, in turn, with elements of each other's testimony which contradicted what they themselves had said in the hope of extracting fuller confessions. They succeeded to some extent, but also threatened to confuse themselves. Both testimonies agreed on the one acceptable fact that Lord Monteagle had been heavily involved in negotiations for a Spanish invasion of England before 1603. One of the reasons why the Gunpowder plot attracts such controversy and so many conspiracy theories is that Catesby's choice of scheme and justification of it seem so inadequate for modern reader. Why risk so much for so little? Why go to the trouble and hazard of blowing up the king and nobility in order to replace them with James's younger son or elder daughter and those lords who survived the blast? Catesby's reported contempt for the majority of lords sounded genuine, but he was hardly planning social revolution. Well, the plotters so desperate they would really risk death, even for a slim chance of interrupting an unending Protestant succession and an even more hostile England? Unlikely though it may seem, there is some evidence for this. Many of the plotters had already risked their lives in rebellion or fighting in the Low Countries. In the plot, they were at least in command of their own forces, however small. Did they deliberately court martyrdom? They certainly dressed for it, in their finest clothes, with their engraved swords, and religiously embroidered scarves. Since the church taught that the consequences of apostasy were worse than death, perhaps they really were sooner dead than changed. On the other hand, many of the plotters were not from settled Catholic backgrounds. They were converts who had lived in outward conformity for long periods. Thomas Winter, for example, had apparently fought on both sides in the Low Countries, while Catesby lived a life of quiet conformity until the death of his wife. Guy Fawkes adopted the religion of his stepfather, and John Wright, imprisoned as a precaution during Queen Elizabeth's illness in 1596, only converted to Catholicism in 1601. They were hardly models of simple religious loyalty, rather a group for whom religion was a badge of disaffection as well as its cause. Catesby, tired of Garnet's religious diplomacy, decided to take decisive action while the Jesuits was away on pilgrimage. Though their loyalties were complex and shifting, the plotters decided, and perhaps really believed, that the mass of people were a much simpler proposition. Given a decisive blow and strong leadership, the people would throw off the new religion with a shrug and hail their saviours, elegantly dressed gentlemen of the old faith to whom they had temporarily closed their hearts as model Englishmen at the head, rather than at the fringes of society. The pursuit of self-interest was perhaps more deeply ingrained than the plotters would like to believe, not least in themselves. There were few people in the plot whose loyalties were not questionable. The society that proved so hostile to the plotters was itself unsure of its own loyalties. James had invented and reinstated a whole layer of aristocracy and gentility to give him networks of patronage in his new kingdom, where he was widely accepted but lacked deep socially rooted support. Beneath this tier, suitors followed their patrons, not out of ancient loyalty, but for what they could get. The authorities struggled and never quite succeeded in making the voluminous documents of the plot tell a consistent story and the great man behind the plot was never identified, though Northumberland spent many years in the Tower under suspicion. For some, this is evidence of conspiracy. At least some of it has to do with the hints and evasions, the sheer ambiguity of the documents themselves. Some of this double meaning was simply a function of the language and the Jacobean view of that language, love of punning and double meaning even at the expense of clarity and even when life and death were at stake. This was not only true of those like Bacon or Johnson, who we classify as literary figures, but all those whose education embraced the art of rhetoric, like Thomas Winter, Henry Garnet, and most of all, Henry Percy, Earl of Northumberland, whose statements were so shrouded in the owl light that even now we cannot be sure if he was one of the plot's intended victims or its greatest intended beneficiary. This event was recorded live on the 5th of November 2009 at the National Archives, Q. This podcast is copyright of the National Archives, all rights reserved.